0: You're listening to Thinking Biblically. Welcome to another edition of Thinking Biblically with me, Alan Gilman, where we discuss how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, Um, If you haven't already, please click the subscribe button if you're watching this on YouTube. And also, don't forget to click the notification bell so you don't miss a single episode. If you're listening to the audio version, you're going to have to figure out yourself how to subscribe, but please do so. Um, And um, so, you won't miss a single time. Today, we're going to be talking about... religious freedom in canada and i'm being joined by the reverend dr don hutchinson and don is an ordained minister lawyer consultant and writer he was the vice president and general legal counsel for the evangelical fellowship of canada between 2006 and 2014 before that he was a pastor for many years don has written two books Uh, The first one was published in 2017. It's called Under Siege, Religious Freedom and the Church in Canada at 150. It was partly to commemorate 150 years of, of Canada. And then more recently in 2019, he published Church in Society, First Century Citizenship Lessons for 21st Century Christians. Don was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his contributions to Canada in promoting freedom of religion and development of public policy. And just last month, Don received his Doctor of Ministry from Canada Christian College and School of Graduate Theological Studies. Um, and so, before before we get into the topic, we are talking about religious freedom in Canada, um, I'd like to do a bit of Get to Know You, and I'm calling this segment, The Many Faces of Don Hutchinson. So let me bring this up. Hope everybody can see this okay. So this, I'm going to have, Don, why don't you, I have three photos that we're going to, to look at to help get to know you a bit. So why don't you do the commentary? So what what are we looking at here?
1: This, this is a picture of uh, me that was a, a screen capture uh, from an appearance before the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015. I know it was 2015 because in the, uh, the far left, you can see Andre Schutten there. And Andre uh, was doing his articles with me, and that was his first trip to the Supreme Court of Canada.
0: All right. So this is something that not everybody gets to do. And uh, so this is one of the faces of Don Hutchinson. How about this one? If we could move it over. There we go. That's a little different.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy uh, riding motorcycle, as you can see here. I'm also a, a safety enthusiast. You can see I'm wearing the full safety gear while I'm riding. Um, this photograph was taken on the US 129 in North Carolina. It's also called The Tale of the Dragon. Uh, in uh, in 11 miles, there are over 300 corners and twists back and forth. It's a challenging road that a lot of motorcyclists in North America try to uh, ride at least once during their lifetimes.
0: Yeah, and so besides all your legal experience, you have a lot of motorcycle experience. <laughs>
1: yeah, on this particular trip, we were headed down uh, to to see my dad uh, for Father's Day, uh, it was the first time in about 50 years I had seen my dad for Father's Day. He he uh, lived in Macon, Georgia, and uh, we were supposed to come up the Atlantic coast. But while we were in Macon, uh, made the decision to uh, go and have lunch in New Orleans, uh, which is another day and a half ride south. And then we we turned north and came back up. Uh, it, it was an incredible motorcycle trip. <laughs>
0: Well, there's one more photo that uh, you you sent me, and um, let me bring that up as well here and explain what this is all about.
1: This is my grandson, John. Uh, John, as you can see, um, has special needs, and um, he's blind, so the steering is done by the guy in the back seat. Which is you. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) And this this is a bike. Uh, that allows him to exercise his legs. John didn't start walking until he was about five, uh, and he rides at school daily, almost every day, a therapy bike, and then at home through uh, the summer and on weekends, this therapy bike. So walking and and cycling keep his legs strong.
0: So you are a – there's a lot to Don Hutchinson – and so can we just take a few more minutes? Can you, can you give me a bit of your and share with the folks your your own faith journey, your own background before we get into the subject itself?
1: Oh, uh, a little bit of my faith journey. Okay. Um, it ties to my life journey. My parents uh, came to Canada from Barbados. And um, so I, I was the first member of my family that was born in Canada. And I grew up with this assumption that being Canadian meant being Christian. Uh, We didn't go to church. Um, We'd we'd had an unfortunate experience uh, when my parents separated and then divorced when I was about four years old. And my mother took us out of the church because of that experience where um, she had been asked actually by the, the pastor to stop sitting at the back of the church crying because it was a distraction. And so I grew up without going to church, but I also grew up in a neighborhood where there were Catholics and Protestants. Um, uh, we had some some Hindus move into the neighborhood. And and um, when I was about 15, I I thought I had this sense that God wanted me in his ministry, but I didn't know what that meant. So I went back to that church that we had left when I was four because it was the only one that I, I had connection to. And... Uh, It had been pointed out several times when we drove past, that's the church we used to go to. My sister got married there when I was about nine. So I knocked on the door, the pastor answered the door. I told him, I I think God wants me in his ministry. And he said, well, how old are you? I said, 15, almost 16. And uh, he said, well, come back to me when you're finished, finishing high school and we'll have a chat about it. And didn't invite me to their youth group, which I later found out was a vibrant youth group. Um, so when I was in my last year of high school, I went and knocked on his door again. And, and he said, uh, come and see me when you're finishing your, your, uh, your BA. Cause I told him I was planning to go to Queens and, and we'll talk about it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, a movie came out called star Wars, which at the time, we didn't know it was episode four, but it turned out to be. And I, I saw the this uh, guy, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who very clearly, based on my Robin Hood movies experience, uh, was a religious guy because he, he had a brown outfit and, and a white robe, uh, I think that was it. No, a white outfit and a brown robe. And, and I so think that's the, correct.
0: I just yeah. got to be really careful that we don't go too far down this okay. tangent. <laughs>
1: Anyhow, uh, it got me thinking again about these religious things. And eventually, um, I ended up in attending, in first year uh, law school, attending a little Salvation Army church in Vancouver. And when I went in, they had this sign at the front, uh, the little push in the plastic letters sign that said, services, Sunday, 11 a.m., 6.30 p.m., Wednesday, Bible study. And I started going to church three times a week because I didn't know any better. (laughs) I didn't know it was optional not to attend all three services. Uh, About four months in, I realized that being a Canadian did not make me a Christian. And I had read through the entire Bible and I went to my pastor and said, I don't think I'm a Christian. I've read through the entire Bible. Have you got anything you can lend me that might help me with this process? So she lent me the book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which opens with the words, uh, When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I sat down one Saturday, uh, December 5th, 1981, about eight o'clock, I started reading that book in the morning. And apart from bio breaks, I read it straight through about 1030 that night, I realized that yes, what I had heard or sensed when I was 15 about God wanting me in his ministry was true. And that now I had to make a decision. Because if I was going to accept him as Savior, I had to accept him as Lord. And that meant changing directions. So 1030, December 5th, 1981. I accepted Jesus as my personal savior, finished that first year of law school, went into pastoral ministry. Uh, Our our initial service was on the La uh, First Nations Reserve in Northern British Columbia for just shy of three years. Uh, Was sent by the Salvation Army, which was the church I was attending and leading in, uh, back to law school, finished my law degree Established the Salvation Army's National Legal Department and uh, and and Walked forward from there. It's been it's been an amazing experience walking with Jesus
0: it's it certainly sounds like it and There's so much to your story and so many things we could explore um, It'd be great to talk about your First Nations experience uh, as well and and uh, and even your understanding of of this term discipleship and what that really means because a lot of a lot of people don't aren't given Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship on sort of like day one <laughs> but it sounds like it was a real godsend in your life It's made a huge difference in understanding what it really means not only to to believe uh, in, in Jesus but to truly obey him which, biblically and this is the thinking biblically podcast thinking biblically means uh, both to as the old hymn says to trust and obey um that they they have to go together even though uh theologians have seemed to have had trouble with that uh but it's one of the reasons why I, i i want i want to do these get to know you's because you know we're going to talk about a subject soon but just like god was embodied in the messiah god continues to embody his people and we can't understand scripture with, without understanding it as something that's embodied in god's people and oh we're the same ones that mess things up really bad you, you know your story about the that pastor when you know um that made your family turn away from from the church but then again it's also people who bring the blessings and make the difference in what God wants to do in the world, which is why I've I've invited you on. And so, um, why don't we jump into the into the topic? And um, I think I took Don a little bit of, by surprise by asking about his faith journey because we we talked before and had some emails. I don't think I mentioned that. Uh, so here's another one that I've been planning. <laughs> that is, <laughs> let's say you yourself are religious freedom in Canada. How are you doing, Don?
1: I'm pretty strong and robust. Uh, I I recognize, as religious freedom in Canada, that there have been some pretty severe constraints on gathering, in particular, over the last almost a year and a half now. Uh, And those constraints are starting to loosen up again. But there has been nothing that has prevented me from sharing the essence of the gospel or uh, others in other religious communities from sharing the essence of their faith. There's, there's, a, there's a great concern uh, right now um, that integrated with religious freedom is the, the issue in Canada of Indigenous rights as the uh, recent uncoverings of the number of of bodies at some of the cemeteries that were identified either locally or in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, uh, the the, the body counts are higher than people had anticipated. And it's, it's caused both a national sense of mourning but it's also caused some uh, violent outbreaks against the church and, and uh, arson in some communities and um, uh, defacing church buildings with graffiti and paint and such in, in other communities. But that hasn't really compromised religious freedom. It, it's, it's a challenge that we're going to have to work through as a nation. Uh, we're still able to share the gospel and as you mentioned uh, we are the people of the word we are the body of Christ in the world and we are also very human and have been uh, historically and even even in the contemporary world involved in things that are not good representations of who Jesus is um, but we're still able to share the truth of who jesus is and so if i am religious freedom in canada i'm i'm feeling uh mournful but i'm also feeling very strong
0: i'm glad to hear it um i'm going to ask you about a couple of particulars in a moment but something related to some of the things that that you said so at first the first thing you you mentioned is how you know we've been undergoing like a lot of the world in Canada here we've undergone a lot of restrictions uh, due to COVID um, and they've also affected religious gatherings which include Christian gatherings and there are some in the church that feel that the government has no nothing to say to the church and and that that's a topic I'm hoping, hoping to have somebody else on who's been specifically grappling with that um, and of course if you want to talk about that more we can um, but I think we would probably agree that for the most part, restrictions upon churches due to COVID have not been, has nothing to do with religious freedom in Canada. Do you agree with that as a statement?
1: uh, I would say that's generally true. Um, I think it's certainly not directed against the Christian church in Canada. I think some of the restrictions are the result of not understanding religion. And so, uh, an inability to understand religious gatherings and the significance of religious gatherings, for example, uh, the Roman Catholic belief in transubstantiation of of um, the host uh, is means that it's, it's vitally important for people to be able to meet in person. Um, the evangelical uh, focus on Hebrews ten and twenty five that we shouldn't forsake gathering with one another, which is an admonition to those who have forsaken gathering to stop doing it, um, has become a focal point for very many people. Uh, the emotional support that comes by gathering; these are all very important things.
0: But we many, could we could apply yeah. that. But we could apply that to all sorts of other non-religious. Right aspects of society where maybe the government we might think the government made a bad decision about closing certain things down because of the negative effects of of those restrictions but again just to make sure we're on the same page so far that these mistakes the government has made has not been with the church in its crosshairs
1: correct it's it's been more out of uh, lack of understanding and the initial decisions of government uh, have also been altered because church leaders have had, had an opening, and opportunity to speak with government leaders and explain to them that, yes, we are able to socially distance if you give us a lesser capacity. We we do take health concerns seriously. We will have places where people can sanitize their hands. We will have people right. wear masks. We'll, we'll follow the precautions. And that has facilitated actually, in most provinces, opening up uh, religious services more quickly than was originally planned
0: right so what about what happened in British Columbia where um, as far as I know indoor dining was open but churches were closed do you think that is it beginning to encroach on religious freedom or like what's what's I don't know how familiar you are with that I, I, I'm
1: that, familiar with it I, I um... I don't think it was specifically intended to be harmful to religion. I think, it, again, it was more that lack of awareness that we could observe the protocols, and and part of um, part of what drove the decisions in British Columbia, as well as from having conversations uh, in Ontario with with representatives here um, part of what drove that was the experience they were having with the churches that were refusing to adhere to the public health guidelines that were put in place and so just as the media got an image of church congregations that refused to adhere to public health guidelines so did government get that type of image and so the question for them was if we allow gatherings, are are all of the religious communities going to be like these ones that are uh, rebelling against the public health guidelines, or are we going to be able to trust them? And it took a number of conversations between Christian leaders and political leaders to build trust just as it did in Ontario and as it as it did in, in um, uh, many provinces uh, across the country. Because remember, these restrictions were public health guidelines. Health is provincial jurisdiction. There was never a declaration of a federal emergency. So these decisions were left with each provincial government and each provincial leader is different. And each provincial government was getting different advice based on uh, how they structured their advisory panels on health and and what the circumstances were in
0: their province. Okay, so let's let's go back to the the more general topic. So you started by saying that that religious freedom in Canada is robust. You seem to be if you were religious freedom you seem to be doing okay. Um, any caveats to that, or is there anything that you're concerned about? uh in in terms of recent developments over the past few years
1: well there are concerns um one we saw was uh in um, uh, 2018 when the federal government required all organizations applying for canada summer jobs funding to sign a statement that many religious communities christian and otherwise were unable to sign saying that there would be uh, uh, absolutely no discrimination in the the process of hiring summer students when religious communities that hire summer students hire co-religionists, which is perfectly legal in Canada. It's not only legal, but most uh, human rights legislation in Canada makes it a positive right for religious communities to hire co-religionists. And there was also the the issue of... um, supporting abortion, which is uh, hugely problematic in a number of religious communities. Uh, Christian, Jewish, uh, Hindu, uh, Muslim, all, all have um, uh, theological, if we want to call that call it theological issues with uh, that situation. And uh, by 2019, the government had reversed its position. But what has come out more recently is that... The government has been receiving applications and vetting them internally based on who refused to sign in 2018 and taking a look at people's websites to see what their position is on some of the issues that the government has established a position on. And so we have this uh, ideological clash with theological communities that is disconcerting. Um, it's something that is going to have to be walked through in addition we have um, uh, most recently the bill c6 conversion therapy legislation
0: which i was going to ask you about
1: that 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 was uh presented in the house of commons um uh, interesting piece of legislation we've had um uh a, a gay conservative uh, member of parliament in recent days say that if the government had simply been a little bit more cooperative in defining what it intends by conversion therapy uh, we wouldn't have had the, the polarization in the House of Commons on the issue, and, and I think that's exactly true.
0: Could you? But, we need to rewind a little bit. Could you okay. explain for for people what C six is all about, in case, and also not everybody uh, watching or listening to this is going to be Canadian. So, can you explain? Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, um, what I think what the government intended by conversion therapy is that if somebody Uh, declares that they're gay, that there have been almost torturous efforts by different religious communities to force them to be straight. Um, And I think that's just
0: Just religious. I I thought like there was a time where there were these psychiatric treatments, shock therapy, that that wasn't all driven by religious people.
1: No, uh, but but religious people are primarily the, primarily the ones that, that C6 was looking at because uh, the, the psychiatric associations in, in Canada and the USA have changed their definitions in regard to uh, homosexuality and transgenderism so that they're no longer considered disorders that need correction. Uh, that, that's now a historic position for them.
0: Um, I, I, sorry to butt in again. I just so we can clarify. <laughs> my understanding is conversion therapy itself uh, came out of like psychiatric type treatments originally, right? So that's, it wasn't wasn't associated with religion in any way. Um, and th- so the term, which they've called C six, the conversion therapy ban. Right. So superficially, it sounds like it was a ban on these archaic Harmful, ineffective, torturous procedures that used to be um, approved by society at large, and society at large now, whether whatever you believe about homosexuality, everybody agrees those therapies, so-called therapies, should be banned. Right. But but however, then the, there's a the little bit...
1: However, the government didn't define that in right. the bill. And the way they define conversion therapy left a very wide spectrum. Uh, there are people... Uh, look, I have I have personal friends, okay? So, uh, you, and I know it's not all anecdotal. You have anecd- personal friends, Don? <laughs> I know it's not all anecdotal, but I, I have personal friends who, because they felt same-sex attraction, but they, they understood from the, their reading of Scripture that that was something that was both unhealthy for them and not intended uh, by God's design in their understanding of scripture, they went for counseling. And the counseling that they went for was to say, I'm feeling same-sex attraction. Would you help me please to follow Jesus as I understand him to be and not engage in same-sex sexual relationships? So some of My friends have remained celibate as a result. Uh, Some of my friends have chosen to engage in marriage between a man and a woman and they found fulfillment in life in those relationships. Um, Some of my friends have engaged in same-sex relationships and they're trying to figure out how they follow Jesus in a setting where they read the scriptures as saying to them, this is sin. Um, Fortunately, none of us are free from sin. And the heart's desire to follow Jesus becomes central in life uh, for those who who want to do so. And it, it becomes complex that way. Uh, But the request in regard to C6 was very simply, give people who want to pursue counseling, whether it's in the church or in a secular setting, or whether it's parents giving advice to their children, uh, or we have the situation in British Columbia where um, uh, a young child wanted to be the other sex and still a minor and the father refused to call the child by the other sex. And really this, this is a minor, uh, in many other countries, they have concluded that, uh, sexual transition through medication and surgery is a decision that can't be made until adulthood. Uh, but in Canada at this point in time, some of that is, is being permitted with children. Um, being so keep, under so, 18
0: so just to keep our so, bearings here yeah. so under the the, the I, i'm banner, coming there i'm actually oh, okay okay good okay there.
1: i'm actually coming back to the legislation okay that while the minister of justice was prepared to say the legislation is not intended to capture conversations with parents physicians uh, spiritual advisors and and teachers and that kind of thing he was unprepared to have that defined in the legislation which made a lot of people uncomfortable particularly in light of the position the government took on Canada summer's job Canada summer jobs just a few years earlier and um it all really i think could have been dealt with a sim- with a simple definition and then the government pushed hard they put They put the pedal to the metal, pressed the gas straight down to the floor to get C6 through the Justice Committee uh, to the point where when the Justice Committee tabled its report in December of 2020 on Bill C6, they had ignored, because it was physically impossible for them to have paid attention to, 220 of 290 written submissions to the Justice Committee that arrived in a timeline where they could not have been uh, reviewed prior to the report being issued. Then the government took their foot off the gas pedal and sat on Bill C-6 for six months, pushed it through in the last month the House was sitting in June, and then asked the Senate to pass it right away. And now the government is asking the Senate to uh, reconvene in the summer to pass the bill. In the meantime, we have all these submissions from uh, religious groups, from non-religious groups, from LGBT groups, that are all, uh, um, many of them from these various communities are saying, whoa, uh, let's slow our roll here and let's put in a definition of what we're talking about for conversion therapy. Now, of course, out of that 220, there are also some that say, push this thing through, get her done. So we're going to have to see whether this was a ploy to make this an election issue because we know that one political party uh, is divided. They supported the bill as was some in that party and others felt the definition was required for it to go forward um, or whether the government is serious about this. I think if the government was serious, uh, they actually were in a position where they could have sent it to the Senate by the end of January and the Senate would have had five months to work on it
0: so it with bill c6 which um has a very high likelihood that it will become law um it was determining for people and religion itself is, is neither here nor there though if you would poll the people of canada you would have you know religious people would come on it certain side of this issue that non-religious people you know would differ on fine but we have a situation where the government was deter determining on behalf of its people um what kind of uh even counseling that they were allowed so unless it changed my understanding was in the bill it would be illegal for a person to be uh to charge money in a counseling session that would include helping someone um with their you know changing their sexual orientation or changing their mind with regard to their gender orientation so they were actually determining for canadians and people who live in canada what you were allowed to pursue with your personal life with regard to the your own understanding of your sexuality. Like a case could be made that if somebody had a particular um, a desire that was deemed legal by the society that nobody has a right to try to coerce them emotionally, physically, to change their mind. And we could have a conversation about freedom of speech and whether this should be allowed. But this bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, was actually predetermining on the behalf of our people what you're actually allowed to have professional conversations about. and then we could we could quibble over whether or not that would seep into the home and pastoral discussions with members. But we know for sure that um, and I saw uh, one person's testimony uh, while this was going through committee, uh, somebody who himself, with same sex attracted, that in the past he went to seek counsel. He did not want these feelings. He wanted to somebody, as you were talking about, this kind of person who wanted somebody to help them deal with those feelings, that that engagement would be deemed illegal in Canada. Is that correct?
1: Well, the way the bill was structured, uh, the only counseling support one could not provide is for somebody to remain cisgender. <laughs> So, uh, to to um, and 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 that's the weakness in the bill uh, from the perspective of of a multiplicity of religious uh, LGBT and uh, uh, the psychological counseling communities. Uh, that's the weakness in the bill that yeah. that the failure to define conversion therapy casts too broad a net.
0: So my so my impression my impression of what's the the call it the religious climate in in, in the country to some extent um, is whether it's due to C six whether it's due to the summer Canada summer jobs um, thing um, or hate legislation, which, again, it's complicated and there's provincial hate speech legislation that's still on the books in certain provinces, maybe all provinces, you'd know better than me. There's already the the current government wants to reintroduce federal hate speech legislation. I don't know if we'll have time to get into B- Bill C-10, but my sense is whether we should feel like this or not, a lot of, um, I'll speak for, you know, for pastors Christian leaders, um, many of us feel intimidated that we're not free to teach the Bible as we see it because of what might happen.
1: And that's the point uh, that while we have a robust religious freedom, which is one of the reasons I wrote Under Siege, uh, is so that people could understand the nature of religious freedom in Canada and what we do have, there is a chill effect when the government does something negative. And we, we've seen this uh, not only with C6, which does cause concerns, uh, but we saw this in the decision in regard to the Trinity Western University law school applications uh, in 2016, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. And by the way, uh, that picture you showed of me at the Supreme Court uh, was um, in regard to the Watcott case, Uh, arguing the, the issue of hate speech in Canada and how it applies to people in the religious community. And the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that our religious texts, like the Bible, are not in and of themselves hate speech. It's how they're used that may be hate speech. That's a very significant decision that our sacred texts Are not hate speech, so editing the Bible is out of the question. But then a a year later, um, uh, or a couple of years later, the Supreme Court of Canada comes back in the Trinity Western Law School case, where Trinity Western crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's for the requirements to have a law school operate under the guidelines established by all of the law societies across the country and agreed to. With the canadian federation of law societies and then uh, two law societies ended up at the supreme court of canada opposing and the supreme court of canada did something that is greatly troubling <laughs> to say the least they ignored the existing constitutional law that they themselves had developed, including a decision concerning Trinity Western operating a school of education uh, where they had made space for religious uh, universities and schools to exist and teach from a religious perspective. And they made up brand new law based on something called a charter value, which they, the, the Supreme Court of Canada made up because the Charter of Rights doesn't have values. It lists rights and freedoms. And they said there there's this underlying value of diversity. Now, in 2001, the court said that we had to respect the diversity of institutions, including religious institutions, and allow Trinity Western to operate and teach a school of education from a religious perspective. And that then... Yay, diversity! That then the... the the responsibility for them in the education system would be monitored by the college of teachers that they had to then comply with the requirements in the education system, but uh, education could be taught from a religious perspective. So this was the expectation for the law school situation. And when the court came up with this underlying charter value of diversity and turned the charter around so that The charter requirements of government could be applied to a private institution. It was bizarre to the point where um, Justices Cote and Brown, in their dissent, said that this concept of a charter value was due to the idiosyncrasies of the judicial mind, that this was just something the judges made up that couldn't be founded in Canadian law.
0: So, so let me let me stop. That's, let me stop. that's
1: disconcerting, but it's yeah. isolated because the court said it only applies to this unique situation and not generally to religious institutions.
0: OK, so now, here's
1: what I here's another Alan, just before you go there. OK, I know you're going to try and get a word in edgewise, but let me let me touch on the second example <laughs> this
0: podcast is this. Go on. <laughs>
1: let me touch on the second example that's far more recent. Uh Three Christian uh, college and universities were named in Bill 213 in Ontario uh, last November. Uh, Redeemer, uh, University, Tyndale, and Canada Christian College uh, were all three named in applying for uh, an upgraded university status. The only one that was opposed by the, by, uh, the opposition was Canada Christian College, and that's because its president, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Charles McVitie, has been very flamboyant as a a public figure and controversial, Um, but really it has nothing to do with whether the president of the institution or, or, you know, we can pick any university in the country and we can find academics who have had public profiles that we might question. Uh, that has nothing to do with it. The question is the academic standards. And here's another school that crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and then was declined. Uh, and they're, they're now headed into judicial review, it looks like, um, which is where Trinity Western ended up several years ago, because the, uh, uh, the provincial uh, review body to assess their accreditation concluded that, oh, yeah, the T's are crossed and, and the I's are dotted, but we're not going to approve this group. And the minister said, well, I'm not going to approve the group if they're not going to get approval from uh, the, the, the quality assessment board, so uh, post-secondary education quality assessment board. So uh, here they are, they are, they're headed into court. And that's disconcerting as well, because religious institutions... Uh, should be able to teach from a religious perspective, and then the regulation of practice comes from the governing bodies that are are secular in nature. Now, please, Alan, uh, say something.
0: Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, what was I thinking? I'm going to try to have an <laughs> argument with a lawyer. Um, but um, so here's something that I'm observing, Don, um, and that is, you will correct me if I'm wrong and that is on one hand I hear that you say you have an assessment of Canadian law legal decisions there's the system that that we have and I'll say it this way on paper it's robust but in practice um, we've got a problem because if we have if somehow our system allows the Supreme Court of Canada, the highest court in the land, to make certain determinations that leave other Supreme Court justices not just disagreeing, but they're scratching their head. Like you're playing by a completely different rule book. Like this isn't even the same legal game. Um, and which is really what our constitution is supposed to provide, the system's supposed to provide, and and, and, and the government if there's if if there are weaknesses in the system that we've all agreed upon, and there are elements in the society that are beginning to like break out into bad directions, they're supposed to bring us back to what, for lack of a better way to say, it, Canada is all about. But somebody somehow is getting away with changing the rules of the game, and this isn't my understanding. This is, isn't just about religious freedom. That there are fundamental freedoms for individuals in this country that are at risk because of some of the ways that whether it's government or the supreme court the society is beginning its direction they're beginning to move in and whether or not we should be intimidated which i think we should not be intimidated but we are certainly being affected and it you wrote under siege it still seems to me that religious liberty is under siege maybe On paper, it's robust, but how robust is it in practice?
1: Well, uh, when I wrote Under Siege, one of the points that I was trying to make uh, in the book is that we have uh, adapted a mentality that we're under siege when, in fact, our freedoms are quite robust. I have friends who are preaching on street corners in cities across this country and they're doing well. I have other other folks that I know who are preaching on street corners and having problems. And part of it is the approach that is taken on the street corner. Uh, part of it is um, some people gain a certain reputation, so they're they're more likely to be asked to depart the street corner. Uh, I I know churches that remained open through the pandemic shut down requirements for churches, partly because the police recognized that if they closed these churches down, the problems in those neighborhoods that the police were going to have to attend to was going to be greater than uh, the 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 issues they would contend with if the churches remained open, because they are places, for community support. There are places for addiction support. There are places that provided clothing and food. And there were also places that had worship services. Um, And and they they worked out deals. Uh, The police were less lenient when they perceived a church to be more self-serving. This is about us being able to get together to worship, but we're not really contributing into the community around us Uh, In fact, in some cases, some of those churches, people protested the churches because they perceived them as not really contributing into the community around them. So when I say that that we have a robust religious freedom, I also look at the rest of the world. Um, I I deal with religious freedom globally. Yes, I have concerns about Canada. Yes, I have concerns about where the direction is going uh, for two reasons. One that people in the church are adapting a mentality that says we should be afraid we should be concerned we don't have the freedoms we once had we need to fight for freedoms no maybe we shouldn't fight so that's going on in the church and outside the church people are saying you know what this bad thing so the laws against homosexuality that were uh, repealed in 1969 they're saying that's because of our judeo-christian heritage and the church is responsible uh, we're seeing the outpouring now in regard to the Indigenous cemeteries, and people are saying, the church is responsible. And um, there, are, there are conversations about history that need to, to be held in the today uh, to decide and, and determine how we're going to live together in our tomorrows. But when we, when we look at other countries around the world, um I, I still see a very robust freedom. I, I would say that on a, a, a you know, if I started grading countries out of 100, um, as I do, I, I actually um, am involved with two international organizations that look at religious freedom that have put Canada on their maps in the last decade or decade and a half to watch what's developing here and to see where it goes. Uh, I would say that Canada rates on a positive scale of freedom. So if we put North Korea at 10 out of 100, then I would say Canada is easily at 90 to 95 out of 100 for freedom.
0: But uh, how? The United, but United
1: think... States is actually a little bit less than we are in some areas, but a little bit more than we are in yeah, other areas. Yeah. So.
0: But you're you know, trying to get a handle on what really is happening. Um so um, it's pretty clear that what happened with the Can of Summer Jobs was discriminatory on behalf of the government. That's right. And you described that first there was actual blatant policy, and we know about in the forum they added a checkbox and if you if you didn't check the box, you just didn't get it. And it was were in such a way that would in particularly would be certain religious organizations who always used to get it, uh, this help to and what that's about was hiring, it was uh, subsidies to hire students to help with, it could be a commercial venture, it could be a mission, it could be a camp, that sort of thing and um, religious people, particularly religious people were targeted and so you even said even after they resolved that, they were still applying that kind of policy. That's clearly discriminatory and one of the difficulties with with comparing Canada to North Korea and going, oh, we have it so much better than they do, we are still a democracy. We're supposed to have freedom of expression in Canada. We're we're supposed to all be able to call the government to account equally, right? Um, That is the way it's supposed to work and so we are facing a situation where you know some people are more equal than others and in particularly religious folks are being treated differently than than other people that are towing a particular kind of you know the way they see certain values because you know we're not in line with these values in the constitution according to some supreme court justices therefore we could be discriminated against now I hear that you are partly reacting to those that are going, it's terrible, it's horrible, we're going to become like North Korea tomorrow, and even comparing ourselves to some of these situations. And no, you know, we have a freedom in God, and we have a power in God, we've been equipped by him to serve him. But in order to serve him most effectively, it seems to me we need to understand the lay of the land. This isn't the same envir- uh, religious uh, environment that we had even a few decades ago. We need to understand, like, so if we, I don't think we really have time, you know, if we can't have a Christian college that trains lawyers, should we not train Christian lawyers? And I know you would probably say, of course we should. We're going to have to find some other way to do it. But I think we have to accept that there's there's something wrong in this country that we hold dear in order to be able to relate to it in the way that we should. That makes sense?
1: I, you know, uh, I think I rate that up there with uh, one of two decisions where the Supreme Court of Canada blew it, in my opinion, and and very, very badly, although um, they did leave a window open to establish a Christian law school uh, under certain conditions, eliminating the the requirement that students sign on the dotted line as to what their religious beliefs are, including uh, marriage being between one woman and one man. Isn't that meddling? Just just before you go there, because you said we might not have time to touch on the other issues. Uh, One of the reasons I wrote Church and Society, the second book, is because it does talk about our citizenship. It does talk about the risks of becoming dependent on government funding like Canada summer jobs, or uh, the the tax credit from Revenue Canada, or in other countries where the church is fully funded by government, or in countries where where the government collects taxes from people who go to church, uh, and then remits the amount they they collect for church tax back to the church. You know, dependency on, on government is not what the church is about. We're supposed to be dependent on
0: Christ. Okay, so I think this is the question I'd like to close with. And it is, if religious freedom in Canada is robust, and you're you're reflecting an encouraged, confident posture, could you, maybe we should have done this right at the beginning, can you define what religious freedom is? Uh,
1: Religious freedom is, I don't know if I can fully define it, but I'll try and give a sentence or two here. Uh, Religious freedom is the ability for us to believe, which is personal, and to practice what we believe, which is personal, but also is public. We are able to gather to worship. We are able to share our faith. We are able to obtain religious materials, Bibles and books and robes and crosses and T-shirts that say John 3:16 and all those kinds of things. Those things are still legal, and we function within the parameters of a society which is currently undergoing its own uh, challenges and confrontations. And the 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 areas of confrontation for the church have largely been driven. By areas where we have theological differences with the culture, um, and so it's confrontation with the LGBT community, or the historic operation of uh, Indian residential schools, and um, historic laws that have been changed in regard to um, abortion, for example, and and so uh, where we where we are in conflict with a culture that is in conflict with itself and is transitioning, uh, the church is going to feel those, those pressures if we are going to live a public faith. And increasingly, uh, people are thinking and living a private faith. Uh, this is not ancient Rome where uh, our faith is going to get us arrested uh, it is however a, a society where someone who objects to our faith might make their objection very clear um but we we still have we still have the freedom to live out and express our faith and to engage uh, the society in which we live
0: well, thank you, Don. Uh, obviously, we could talk for another hour, and maybe we'll do that another time. I really do appreciate you uh, joining me to have this discussion. Um, if people want to contact you or, or find your books, what's the best way to do that?
1: If you go to uh then it's there. Um, you can get some background on the books, and you can either buy them from me uh, and then you get a signed copy and free shipping. I think they're I think they're twenty bucks each on the on the website, or you can get them from uh, Christian booksellers, uh, Amazon, Indigo, uh, across across the uh, the market, available in paperback and electronic formats
0: well that's great so everyone please check out don's website don i'm going to put the uh that in the description again thank you don and hopefully we'll be able to do this again another time
1: thank you alan it's been a pleasure
0: so do you agree with don's assessment or do you not agree with don's assessment i would love to hear you could take it up with him go to his website and and um and contact him um but I would be really happy to hear what you think about today's discussion. Do you agree? Do you disagree? You could send your comments about this episode or any other episode to comments at thinkingbiblically.ca. That's also in the description below. you're going to want to join us next time i'm going to have a very different kind of conversation with um bible translator and professor dr doug trick from trinity western university which is mentioned in uh our conversation today and i'm discussing with uh with with doug dynamics of bible translation and so besides learning a little bit about what what goes into translating the scriptures into a language that's never even been written down before i think you're going to be really really surprised i've already recorded this conversation that's why i can be so confident you're going to be surprised at um some of the challenges that we face as english speakers and readers when we read uh the english bible i think it'll really it surprised me it's going to surprise you Maybe it didn't surprise me, but it will surprise you. So you're going to want to check that out next week. Please send me your comments. Don't forget to subscribe and click the notification bell. And you can also see below how you could support this podcast. I'd really appreciate that. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.